0: I'm Amy Wagner. Welcome to the best of Simply Money. Each week we put together some of our favorite segments from the 55KRC radio show exclusively for this podcast. The Tri-State, well, it continues to open back up. But before you sit back and relax, understand this. You may want to expect at least some turbulence in your 401k. You're listening to Simply Money tonight. I'm Amy Wagner, along with Steve Sprovac. You know, For the past year, every week, it feels like there's another piece of data, another piece of bad information about the economy. And now we have slow news weeks, and I will never complain about a slow news week again. Uh, More Americans, of course, getting vaccinated. States are reopening. Our economy seems to be moving full steam ahead. Joining me tonight, Andy Stout, CFA, Chief Investment Officer at Allworth Financial. Okay, I say it's moving full steam ahead. What say you, Andy?
1: Well, the economy is certainly moving in the right direction. Uh, we've seen a lot of uh, restrictions being lifted. California, on June fifteenth, they're looking to reopen. That's important because you know it's the most populous state out there, and they're a big contributor to our overall economic growth. And mm-hmm. these are all things that are really going to help push the economy to perhaps the strongest growth in about thirty years.
0: So what do you see as potential speed bumps if we're looking at where we are right now uh, you know we can't say of course there's going to be 100 percent smooth sailing we don't know what's on the horizon we don't have a crystal ball but what do you think could contribute to maybe some bumpy days
1: yeah so there's there's certainly a few things out there that we're watching uh, pretty closely here on the investment side I look at valuations like how much the price to earnings multiple, how high that is, which tells you how much you're paying for one dollar of earnings. And right now it's elevated. That doesn't mean returns will be negative, uh, but it it, it, does, it can exasperate the volatility, uh, if you will. Also looking at inflation, we, we think we're going to see some higher inflation readings here over the coming months. And we don't think it's a long-term problem, but we are going to see higher inflation uh, numbers and worried a little bit about virus mutations. So in the U.S., It's it's really doing we're doing we're doing the best job out there as far as any large country goes when it comes to vaccinations. I have been been so amazed and
0: impressed. I know we got off to a slow start with the vaccines, but I have to tell you, everyone I know who wants to get a vaccine has either gotten it or is scheduled to get one. Uh, And I think that's pretty, you know, pretty amazing considering we're in April.
1: Yeah, I mean, 36 percent of the U.S. population has received at least one dose and 22% of the population fully dose or fully vaccinated. So if you want one, I mean, a lot of people have been able to get the vaccine and that's good. But what I'm worried about, when we think about it from a global perspective, if we have a lot of these virus mutations, that's going to have the current vaccine uh, suite that's out there less effective against like, you know, there, there's a California mutation out there. There's the India one, the Brazil one. I mean, everybody has their own mutation. It seems like And while these vaccines have been pretty effective, very effective, really against the original strain, these quick mutations make it more difficult for the current vaccines to be uh, effective in terms of as effective as they have been. Now, the reason that matters from an economic standpoint is that certainly some countries which aren't really vaccinating very quickly they're going to have a diff, more difficult time reopening uh, than the U.S., and it's also going to mean that the virus is going to be here for a while. I mean, we're not talking a few months. probably talking a few years at least uh, until more and more people can be vaccinated and we get herd immunity really across the globe, which will kind of help hopefully you know, stamp out uh, mutations. But in the meantime, it's going to be pretty uneven, and we're likely to see the U.S. economy, on a relative basis, do a lot better than most of the other economies out there because we're getting there a a lot quicker, but expect uneven global growth and expect to be getting shots for a while.
2: So
0: I'm hearing you say that the things that are kind of you're keeping an eye on or maybe a little worried about the possibility of inflation and, of course, maybe stock valuations in individual companies, uh, maybe a little, a little too high. And then, of course, the global response, the global ability to get these vac- the people vaccinated in other places. But, Andy, when you look at economic data here in the U.S., um, is everything that you're seeing relatively strong still?
1: Yeah, it it really is. What we're shaping up to see, just to give you the high level first, is that the first three months of the year, January, February, March, economic growth annualized looks to be about 5% right now, which is really good. And economists, what we're forecasting in the second quarter, so April, May, June, 10%, which would be extremely strong. Now, a lot of that's obviously because of the stimulus. Uh, mm-hmm. there 's the infrastructure package coming up and up and as well as the reopening in general. And when we look at the specific data points, for example, one released last week uh, is a services survey so what that tells us is how quickly uh, the service industry is expanding or contracting. And the level it came at was really at a record level since the survey began um, back in 1997. And we saw strength, if we look at the the survey specifically, what we saw is the search in new orders, employment, and business activity. And that really is important because the services industry makes up a much larger part of our economy than what manufacturing does. Manufacturing, by the way, mm-hmm. also at a multi-decade high. So things are clicking right now when we look at the data. and We're really setting ourselves up for a pretty, pretty strong economy. And for the entire year, possibly seeing total growth around 7%, which would be the best growth in about 30 years.
0: You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC as we're joined by our chief investment officer, Andy Stout, uh, as he does every week. To kind of give us an update on the state of the economy, Andy, you're talking about the fact that, um, you know, jobless claims way down. I remember back after the Great Recession, I think it was 2013, before we had fully recovered from all of those job losses. Do you think it will take as much time as it did uh, then, uh, now coming out of this
1: yeah. So it took about five years, essentially. I think it might be maybe a tad quicker, maybe by a year or so, but it's going to yeah. take a while uh, for that. Because what we don't know is the the permanent job losses. How many job losses are just gone completely? I mean, we really haven't seen too many bankruptcies uh, because uh, of the shutdowns and because of all the stimulus that's been thrown out there. I mean, here's a number for you, Amy, $5.2 trillion. That's the amount of stimulus from the CARES Act last year, Mm -hmm. the 900 billion stimulus passed in December, and the most recent 1.9 trillion, 5.2 trillion. That's 25% of our economy. That's how much money Congress has thrown at this. For some perspective, I was looking at this earlier today, if we look at what the New Deal was from 1933 to 1939, from the Great Depression perspective, the amount of spending there was 40% of the total US economy. So we're already at 25% in one year. And that was over basically a six year period and the Great Depression, which was arguably, though, you know, obviously the worst time ever from an economic perspective. Sure. So we're just throwing the money at it. And yes, I do think even though we are throwing so much money at it, we still have a few more years before we fully recover the job losses.
0: And I think when you look at these projections quarter by quarter of, of how much growth that we're going to have, you, you cannot discount the impact that you you just mentioned the stimulus money has had on that. If I guess, And I guess Biden's, of course, infrastructure deal will juice the economy once again. But going out to the end of the year, do you see any issues with the fact that we won't have that kind of regular stimulus money in the economy anymore?
1: Well, the th- hope from many economists is that as we reopen – that becomes the stimulus. So if you kind think of about it, picks up economy, where the stimulus
0: left off.
1: Exactly. Because we have a lot of pe- millions of people, you know, about 10 million people, still unemployed. And they're not unemployed. Many of them are not unemployed, not because they don't want a job, but because they don't have a job to go to. So mm-hmm. as these uh, the leisure and hospitality industry opens up more, we should see more people getting jobs. That's going to boost their income and boost the spending of that. And that should in turn create some sort of a, a positive cyclical effect where spending by other pe- people having been able to spend results in more hiring and stronger economic growth and more spending and more hiring. It just becomes a circular effect. That's what the hope is. So am I worried about it? Yes. Do I think the reopening might subsidize it? I do. So we'll see Mm -hmm. how it plays out. Now, Biden has that $2.25 infrastructure bill. One thing to keep in mind, though, that's not all at once. That's spread out over eight years whenever it is passed by Congress, and then we'll get through. The question is, what does it look like as it gets through?
0: And as you look at that infrastructure bill, Andy, um, one thing President Biden has said, the way he's going to pay for that is to increase corporate taxes. Initially, he wanted to go from 21 percent to 28 percent. Now it looks like he might find some middle ground at 25 percent. What are your thoughts on that? Does that have a a damper on the economy?
1: Well, I I think the 28 percent would have been – possibly net negative, uh, because the infrastructure would have obviously added to our total growth, right? There's mm-hmm. no question about that. So it would help companies in their profits and sales from that perspective. However, they're going to lose more of that to taxes. By going to 25%, probably becomes a slightly net positive uh, for companies and for the economy as a whole. So I, I'm glad it's known at the 28%. Uh, certainly 25% appears more attractive from an economic and from a corporate profit perspective.
0: And, Andy, you know, we talk about the stimulus money certainly helping get us through and get us uh, out of this pandemic on solid ground. But no question the Fed, our nation's central bank, has has played a a large role in that, too. We're expecting uh, a number of conversations from the people um, in the Fed this week. And I know the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, is expected to talk this week as well. Uh, Any concern that he might say or the Fed might do something that could uproot all of this?
1: Well, they certainly have a history of saying the wrong thing. And kind of scare <laughs> I know the market you feel that way. There's no question about that. But I don't think there's going to be any anything too major that no will signal no surprises. A policy change. Well, there could be. I mean, I wouldn't put anything, anything past the Fed. I mean, they've done it plenty of times in the past. But I don't expect any sort of policy change or for them to signal any sort of real policy change, I mean, they're not hiking rates, they're gonna keep rates for very low. I mean, they've already projected uh, from their prior meeting that they'll keep rates near zero through the end of 2023, which is a pretty long time to keep rates at zero, especially with inflation perking up a little bit. Uh, but what they're looking for, they're looking for full employment. So that's like employment, unemployment rate down to around 4.1%. But one of the keys on that is they want it to be inclusive. We've had a history here where certain um, demographics have had lower unemployment rates than others. Mm-hmm. So what Powell wants is that to be a more inclusive unemployment rate that's lower kind of across the board. And he's also looking for inflation to be stable. So what he wants is they, he the inflation they look at. It's called PCE. But they would want that to be averaging 2%. Now, when they say average, that means they can let it run hot for a while. So they don't want to kill off the recovery by hiking rates too soon. And that's a big difference from where they've been in the past. Because when we look at average, we don't know what time period they're averaging. They could say, oh, let's look at over the next 10 years. So Mm -hmm. who knows? Uh, But what I can tell you is if we look at full employment coupled with inflation at 2%, that's basically only happened about 10% of the time over the past 10 years.
0: All right. So nothing really uh, startling that you're too concerned about right now. And, of course, we'll certainly keep our eye on this for you. Here's the Simply Money point. Yes, there's going to be some turbulence, but our economy is coming back, and we feel it's coming back strong. And, you know, cheap money has its own set of risks. Tonight, what bonds are doing in your savings right now when they're paying you next to nothing? See, this is an issue, I think, for a lot of people, because we talk about bonds being shock absorbers. And I think that's a a way that you have to understand and look at them.
3: Well, we're in a a whole new uh, environment right now, Amy, with low interest rates. But they're starting to edge up a little bit. And and yeah, uh, bonds are, are used very, very well as a shock absorber. But a lot of people assume that there isn't much risk and and the risk might be lower than in the stock market, but they still have some volatility. I I mean, first of all, with low interest rates, if you're trying to live off of the interest, good luck, because 10-year treasuries are only about 1.6%. You're not making much there. And the people that have been buying bonds to get higher yield, and, and yeah, you could go out there and get three, four, maybe even five in, percent in the past year or two. Um, you'd have to go to corporate bonds, but you can find some double A AA and triple triple A corporate bonds that were paying about three percent. Not anymore. The 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 yields on corporate bonds have come down to almost match ten year treasuries, which means if you still want to try to get three percent off of your bonds, you've either got to go really long term or you've got to go with a whole lot higher risk.
0: Well, and I think that defeats the purpose, right? I mean, the reason why you put bonds as part of your investment mix is to they have – that kind of safety—you're no. eliminating the risk that you might find elsewhere in the stock market. So, okay, you want five percent or more on a bond right now? This is the riskiest kind of parts of the junk bond market. There's a Petróleos Mexicanos, an oil and gas. Oh, they'll gas. pay you five. Yeah, they'll <laughs> you give you five percent. Heard of them? How do you feel about investing in them? Oil How and gas exploration money? in Mexico.
3: You know, it's not just return on your money; it's return of your money when that bond comes due. And uh, I don't know about that one, but if you want four or five percent, that's what you have to do, uh, and, and, which is take on a whole lot more risk. So I, I would say think really hard before you do, before you do that to get higher yields. Sometimes you just have to say, okay, if I'm a low-risk individual, I guess I'm going to get paid lower interest. I'll tell, here's the other uh, concern I've got, Amy, is if you're trying to push out maturity, if you're willing to buy a bond that doesn't come due in 20, 25 years to get higher interest, what happens when interest rates go up? The value of bonds drop. And you know what? If you've got a bond that comes due in 30 days, it doesn't drop much. If you've got a bond that comes due in 30 years, guess what? Guess what? It's going to drop a little bit. No, nope, a lot a bit more if interest rates go up. So be careful on on trying to look at longer maturities also.
0: It's like the more creative you try to get with bonds in order to get that income, in order to get that guaranteed return, or you can't get a guaranteed return, but to get the higher returns, you're going to take on more and more risk, defeating the purpose of them altogether. So keep these things in mind. Here's a Simply Money point. Bonds are paying a whole lot less, which means you need a more detailed plan for retirement income. You know, many of us grew up not talking about money in our homes and certainly not learning about it in school. And now our children are growing up, uh, and many of them may not be learning about it in classrooms. There is now, though, an Ohio Senate Bill 1, which would address just this problem. Joining us tonight, Julie Heath, Dr. Julie Heath, Executive Director of the All Paul Family Economic Center at the University of Cincinnati, great friend of the show. Uh, Julie, I think so many people are just shocked to learn that their children aren't getting this education at school. What does this bill do to kind of take care of that problem?
2: Uh, Hi, Amy. Uh, Yeah, I I think a lot of people uh, just kind of assume that in this day and age, uh, their kids will graduate from high school having had a course in financial education. And uh, sadly, um, that is not true, uh, at least in the state of Ohio and several other states it is. But in Ohio, is there a current
0: standard in Ohio? What's the current standard?
2: Yeah, currently, um, they are required to teach financial education content, but it does not have to be in a standalone course. So the content can be wrapped up in like government or American history or, you know, some other course that students need to graduate. So they are required to get the content, but it's just in much abbreviated form, and it doesn't have a whole semester course devoted to it.
0: So let's talk about uh, this bill uh, and how it would remedy that situation.
2: Yeah, so um, like, like you said in the, in the opening, it's Senate Bill 1. It's put forth by um, Senator Wilson and I think uh, Steve Wilson uh, from up in Lebanon, and I think it's got another uh, sponsor as well. Um, and it would uh, do exactly that. It would require a full semester uh, course um, just on financial education, and it would, uh, it would take the place of an elective, um, so it, it's not like, you know, we're kicking out American history to make room for it. It would it would take a it would. People are still getting their math, the their
0: science, their English. Right. right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, so, um, you know, in the past, when um, financial education or any kind of new requirement is proposed, um, what people are correctly, in my opinion, concerned about is, is this an unfunded mandate? Um, meaning that, you know, are, are teachers going to have to get training that they have to pay for out of their own pockets and mm-hmm. all of that kind of thing? And, and the answer is no. Um, part of the bill also sets up a, a fund um, that would sit in the treasurer's office um, to cover the costs for schools um, to have their teachers um get up to speed no, You're listening if to if Simply Money he, tonight here he, on
0: 55KRC. Uh, Dr. Julie Heath from the UC Economic Center is joining us tonight um, with great information on a new bill uh, coming down the pike in Ohio, Senate Bill 1, that could require all high school students to have a, a financial literacy class in order to graduate. You know, Julie, having that conversation in high school, though, if it's your senior year, might almost be too late. Um, my daughter took an elective her sixth grade year, uh, so in middle school, and it looked at how much does college cost? How much do cars cost? What kind of job do you want to get out of college and how much will that pay? And it really kind of walked them through some really kind of eye opening ways to think about money that probably they never had as sixth graders. Uh, Does this tackle maybe getting an education any earlier than that? Or is this just by your senior year?
2: Uh, You know, a a one-and-done approach, especially when it comes to financial education, I I think is is never going to be sufficient because, you know, really financial education isn't just about knowing a vocabulary list, right? It's about being able to think critically through issues that have to do with money. And because it's critical thinking, it needs to start as early as we can possibly start. I mean, we know by age seven. That kids are already establishing consumer habits, and they're already very, very cognizant of the marketplace and how things work, and where does this money come from. So, we need to start early. Um, and And the state legislature, uh, for the past five years, has funded um, us, the Economic Center, rolling out Smart Ohio. So, um, this is talk very about what that is. Talk about what smart, smart Ohio. Ohio is. smart Ohio is um, the curriculum is a digital platform um, and it's um, it's a k to eight digital platform that makes it really, really easy for teachers to get financial education um, in front of their students. It can be teacher-led, student led. Um, it's won three national curriculum awards. So uh, the legislature has been really forward-thinking and recognizing that we can't wait until high school and have that be the only touch our kids have with with financial education. We need to lay the foundation early, just like any other subject, and then that's that required, if it passes, that required senior course is just a nice capstone um, when they're heading out the door.
0: Julie, I want to give parents or grandparents who are listening tonight some practical advice. What are the kinds of topics that, whether or not this is being discussed in your child's classroom, that you should be covering with them at home? And just so that you know that they're aware of, of how these things work, what would you say maybe the top three things that they need to know would be?
2: I think parents and and guardians need to be very open with their kids about their own financial discussions. Oftentimes, Mm -hmm. we we think that um, money discussions are very personal, private, and and yeah, but you're not doing your kids any favors um, if you don't talk about them in front of that. So, see, they should see your budget. They could see how you make trade offs and how you decide things. Help them establish um, second, their own budget. Help them understand that if you decide to spend on this, then you cannot on this. Mm-hmm. And third, um, emphasize um, how very, very powerful compound interest is. Sit down with them with an online tool and see see if you save this much um, per week, per month, per whatever, um, see how much it will grow with someone else's money. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so just explain the power of compounding. I think those three things would go a long way. So
0: I love, uh, Julian, I know that you do too, that Senate Bill 1 would introduce this in the classroom. Um, but but to your point, I think it's, it's so critical that parents are having these conversations with your kids as well. Early... And often. Great advice tonight from Dr. Julie Heath, executive director of the Alpha Family Economic Center at the University of Cincinnati. You've been listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC. We are the talk station.
3: When bull markets run long, some unusual investments start coming out and we're, we're starting to see that. We've been talking a lot about SPACs Now we're going to talk a little bit about something called collective investment trusts. Um, I got my first call on this yesterday, Andy, and a client is uh, being forced into a collective investment, actually several collective investment trusts as part of his 401k. Tell us a little bit about what a collective investment trust is. Yeah, I, I think most investors
4: are familiar with mutual funds and retirement savings vehicles like 401ks. You know, most of us have retirement accounts. Um, a collective investment trust, which is known as a CIT, it combines some of the characteristics of both. Um, you know, while CITs are similar to mutual funds, they generally only have or uh, only available to participants in employer-sponsored retirement plans like a 401k or 403b, um, they do have some benefits and drawbacks, um, but there are some things that you need to consider. Um, they are basically a type of tax-exempt pooled investment vehicle which basically means all the assets are pooled within that particular fund or retirement plan, like a 401k. And then they're they're designed to create larger and more diversified income portfolios. You can have a variety of securities within these pooled investments like stocks, bonds, and even mutual funds. Um, And there's no limit to the number of investors that can be a part of a CIT. They're primarily maintained by trusts or banks, as opposed to, uh, an investment firm in that regard. So
3: so they're they sound like mutual funds, but they're not mutual funds. I, I, I think that's that's the takeaway from here. You know, I, I started research after I got this question yesterday, I started researching uh, the, these investments myself. And, and apparently most stable value investment choices in 401ks are a form of collective investment trust. So I guess I, I've I've been aware of these, but, you know, they're they're lower fee in in most cases. So I I think we're going to see a whole lot more of these in the future. And and I I think we all have to bone up on what is a a collective investment trust and what are the pros and cons. I I mean, I came to some conclusions out of it. First of all, um, you're pretty much only seeing them in 401ks at this point. So it's something that may or may not be included in your 401k in the future but if it is there is some important things to know first of all what jumped out at me is a- andy these things are not regulated by the sec by the securities exchange commission
4: yeah that's all concerning um, you know and that's why they're able to have lower management fees because they don't have to pay for the sec regulation and and no prospect
3: um, no prospectuses which yeah, is a way you of know, disclosing and,
4: yeah, exactly they don't have to report as much um, about their investments and things like that so that makes me a little bit leery um, you know, what I've found is a lot of times these CITs um, are a part of 401ks where you may see target, targeted date funds or what we yeah. call lifestyle funds where you have a target date 2025 fund and things like that. So, you know, my advice would be if you, if you do see those target date funds, research them a little bit more. Talk to your um, plan administrator of that particular plan to see if the, those are CITs and what other options that you might have if you're uncomfortable with that because they're not regulated. Um, like mutual they they are or. different.
3: They, they, they are different. They're not mutual funds. They're not exchange traded funds, which I think most people are are comfortable with and understand how they're regulated and who's who's looking over their shoulder. I I, I mean, these things are regulated by the controller of the currency and and. That's not that's not a bureaucracy that spends all of its time looking at investments. I, I in 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 my opinion, I, I mean these are things that are fairly new. They're they were fairly uncommon. There were only 154 billion dollars worth of these things in 2014, but last year 1.18 trillion. So, you know, we're seeing these starting to gain in popularity. And besides the regulatory concern that I've got is you can't really track their track record very closely. You can't pull up a Morningstar. Uh, You know, it's, it's hard to see how they've been doing.
4: Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, these collective investment funds are like hedge funds that aren't registered with the SEC. So they're open to more investments available in retirement plans. Just be aware of what you're investing in and how that affects your overall plan, and make sure it's meeting your goals before you do invest in these.
3: You're, you're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovac, along with Andy Schaefer, um, friend and colleague. Uh, so we're talking about uh, something called collective investment trusts. If you haven't heard of them in the past, you're probably going to hear more about them, and, and we have some concerns. Uh, red flags, They're they're not... Uh, they're they're not uh, regulated by the Securities Exchange Commission. Uh, they aren't required to report portfolio holdings. Uh, and in some cases, they are allowed to freeze shareholder funds, which, which Andy, that really has me concerned. I, I mean, if I want to cash out or move from one investment to another, I don't want to be told, I'm sorry, that fund is frozen, we're in a volatile environment, and you can't do it today. Liquidity is everything in investing. Yeah,
4: you know, what of the rules for retirement savings is only buy investments that you can buy today and sell tomorrow. You know, liquidity is important in investing. And, you don't realize you need it until it isn't there. And you know, these CIFs, you know, Steve, you got a call from one of your clients about those. And I've received a number of calls from other clients um, about special uh, purpose acquisition companies, SPACs. So you might be hearing about those a little bit in the news media um, as well. So, you know, there's a lot of these new types of Well, I wouldn't say new, I'd say um, more reported on lately types of investments. that just want to make sure that are, are right for you. You know, SPACs have been around for decades. Um, they've become a lot more popular late, lately because you're seeing a lot of um, um, people in the media. You're seeing a lot of uh, stars and, and, and fans that are trying to get into those. So just be aware of what you have and what you're trying to invest in.
3: Yeah. So if you haven't heard of collective investment trusts, you may be hearing more about them in the future. Here's a Simply Money Point. Stick with investments that you can buy today and sell tomorrow.
0: You've been listening to the best of Simply Money. Now, if you could do us a favor, send the show to a friend if you think they may benefit from it as well. At All Worth Financial Retirement is what we do.